Disrupting Japan, Episode 89. Disrupting Japan is sponsored by Justa. Now, I've known the team at Justa for years, and I've been recommending them long before they became a sponsor. Justa is really the only recruiting site that gets bilingual startups. Whether you're looking for American engineers or Japanese sales staff or the other way around, Justa can help you out. Unlike recruiting companies, they are priced to be very startup-friendly, and unlike job boards, they're an active part of the startup community here, and they're trusted by some of the best talent Japan has to offer. So drop by Justa.io and see what they're about. Welcome to Disrupting Japan. Straight talk from Japan's most successful entrepreneurs. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for joining me. You know, crowdfunding and crowdsourcing in Japan largely gained in its popularity in projects related to the massive March 2011 earthquake and ensuing tsunami and the release of radiation at the Fukushima nuclear power plant. In fact, Long-time listeners have heard the founders of some of Japan's largest crowdfunding and crowdsourcing companies explain that breaking away from this image of crowdfunding as a social good was something they had to overcome before their startups became truly successful. Well, today, we're going to sit down with Peter Franken of SafeCast, one of the earliest examples of widespread crowdsourcing in Japan. And we talk about how they've grown from a Japanese patchwork solution to the leader of a global movement. After the Fukushima nuclear disaster, people throughout Japan were worried about radiation. TEPCO, who operated the facilities, and the Japanese government assured everyone that things were under control and that everyone was perfectly safe. As you might imagine, however, most people were highly skeptical of these claims. The radiation data just wasn't there, or it wasn't being shared with the public, or it wasn't believed when it was shared with the public. Peter and his team started SafeCast to make sure that lack of information and lack of transparency would never happen again and they began building low-cost Geiger counters that people around the country, and then around the world, could use to measure their local area and then have all that data uploaded into the cloud and made available for anyone. It's an amazing story, and it's one that Peter tells much better than I do. So let's hear from our sponsors and get right to the interview. Some of Japan's largest companies are starting open innovation programs and actively reaching out to global startups. They're new at this, and that's where Crew, with two W's, comes in. Crew runs corporate startup accelerators for companies like Toyota and Panasonic and dozens more. And these programs are one of the best ways to jumpstart your business in Japan. Many are open to global startups, and they're completely free. Now, I've known and worked with the Crew team. And they're probably doing more than anyone to bridge the gap between corporate Japan and global startups. So drop by crew with two W's dot M-E slash four hyphen startups and get started. So I'm sitting here with Peter Franken of SafeCast. You guys make an open 
environmental data collection system for everyone, but I think you'd explain much better than I can what it is. To explain what we're doing, the best thing is just to go back in time a little bit. Exactly six years ago, uh, in March 2011, uh, we all witnessed a big earthquake, and as part of that, the Fukushima Daiichi disaster. And that's really where SafeCost uh, started. It started from the need to know what was happening in terms of radiation exposure in Japan. And as you know, most of the folks that were here uh, will remember very well, there was lots of uh, concern about that. But also the biggest problem was there was just no data available. Uh, whatever the authorities had was very uh, sparse and most of it was not useful. Nothing was really from Fukushima itself. Mm -hmm. And we started to uh, try to solve that problem. Well, it was also, as I recall, that there was a lot of people that just simply didn't believe what the government was telling them. Yeah, so the trust was, lots of people didn't trust up TEPCO's uh, own assessment. But the real problem, I, I think, in retrospect, was there, were, there was very little information available. Whatever was available was not disclosed. Uh, and by the f sheer fact that information was not available, that created even a bigger distrust. So and that was really this, the, the space where... Uh, we decided to start SafeCast. We said we must know what is happening in the environment. Radiation at that time was uh, the critical uh, uh, driver. And we said, how can we make this as open and transparent as possible? And uh, we did all kinds of things in the beginning. We didn't start with, with, with the solar iron and building things. We actually thought that information would be available, yet it was just hard to find or not easy to digest. So we started to look around on the internet, hoping to find all that information and then put it on a website and and share that. Uh, however, uh, that didn't really fan out. We did find information. Most of it was from some universities that all were in Tokyo, all measuring something that wasn't relevant. And our map was very empty after uh, looking around for two weeks. So we started to started to rethink. Did the Japanese government have a unified national data collection system for radiation? Uh, yes and no. Uh, they actually had a system. The system was called Speedy. And that system was originally designed to predict where the plume would go after a nuclear disaster. So it had sensors and it had a huge mainframe with a huge piece of software on it that would read all the sensor data and then churn out a projected, tra you know, the trajectory of the plume. And uh, the key thing is, is that system was there, it did operate, but it is not a publicly accessible system. It's not that you go online and see what is happening here. So the information was exclusively uh, uh, available to the Japanese government only, and for all kinds of reasons, which you know, they decided to ignore that information. So this is uh, one of the big uh, parts of the whole accident that went horribly wrong. Uh, so they didn't look at that information, and they they started to, you know, to improvise from that point onwards. So it, to answer your question, yes, there was a system, not publicly available, and effectively not not was not used. Today, that system has been decommissioned. And today, Japan doesn't have that system anymore. So we actually have less than we, what we had before the accident. Well, so hopefully with, with SafeCast, we've got a little you know, more thorough data than we had before. Right. So we realized that information wasn't available. We couldn't put it on a website. So we, and we said, OK, maybe, uh, maybe we can crowdsource uh, the data. Uh, so the initial idea was to buy Geiger counters and give them to folks so that they could collect the data and, and tell us so we could publish that. We did try to do that. but. Shortly after the accident, all Geiger counters worldwide sold out because everybody in Japan needed one. But what we didn't realize was that they would be sold out for six to 12 months because the supply chain for this is not, you know, they're, they're not iPhones or something where there's yeah. millions can be produced on demand. 
I'm the, sure there has been a, a slow, steady yeah, demand yeah, for them. Yeah, so exactly. So the, the factories that are churning them out were not going to scale up and were not very easy to scale up because of the, 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 the actual sensors are, are not so easy to manufacture. So the net net was is no Geiger counters. So we had actually run a Kickstarter campaign for at that, by that time. So we got some money. And then we started to rethink, so if we don't have Geiger counters, what do we do next? So we had a few Geiger counters that we had by that time, we had maybe 10 or so. And the idea was born that maybe we can do what Google does, uh, kind of a street map view of radiation by driving around. And that kind of started this really into something that we thought we could execute. So we got, we did a trial, we had a truck driver go up, uh, David Kell, and he was, uh, so he was one of the volunteers going up by truck and we gave him a Geiger counter and an iPhone and we said, can you, Whenever you stop, just take a, take a measurement. And after you have taken a measurement, just upload it. So he, as he was traveling up north, he was keep on sending these, uh, these pictures up and we could see what was happening. So it was kind of the real first version. But it was just to see that, you know, would this work? The second version of this was a group of KO University students where we were more structured. They were driving up and we said every five minutes, take a picture of the Geiger counter. And they, they kind of dictate dictate the, the, the Geiger counter uh, onto the car on the outside. Right. And they were sitting inside, and so they could see the screen of the Geiger counter, and every five minutes they snapped the picture. Yeah, well, worked, in, in principle, that's, that's still kind of what you're doing. And that's what we're doing. And the only thing we did is, is we automated the process. So what, you know, we, uh, we had a bunch of uh, people that were uh, at Tokyo Hackerspace that we all got together, and we started to say, how can we make this thing with Arduinos and, and make it more automated? So we put the whole thing together. We chose a box to put it all in, which looked like a kind of a bento box. And uh, we hooked up a computer, and that was kind of the real kind of the first thing we got going. So you, you basically designed a, a Geiger counter, a do-it-yourself Geiger counter kit. Right. Well, the kit came much later. Uh -huh. This was really a, a real, you know, we took a real commercial Geiger counter because we didn't have anything else. Uh, so we took that, we kind of interfaced it with an Arduino, hooked it up to a PC, and on the PC we wrote a piece of software that every five seconds would read out the value from the Geiger counter and store it on the hard disk. So it was really version, the first thing we, we, we did. So with that, we went to Fukushima and to do our first measurements. Okay, and how long after the earthquake was this? So this was uh, about six weeks after the earthquake, roughly. And we knew that time was working against us because you know, as the, the disaster was progressing, there was no information, but you know, bringing information, uh, you know, a year after the accident is not really interesting. We wanted to know now, and more specifically, I have a family here. I have a young daughter. I wanted to kind of know what my risk was, and if, should I move away from Tokyo, or you know, what what is happening well, here? Six weeks after the accident, there was still a tremendous amount of concern. Absolutely. Even today, the concern still continues for specific areas. So we really wanted to move as quickly as possible so that people would get the data as early as possible. So the, the first so-called BGAGI, which stands for Bento Geiger Counter System, on the road was uh, towards the end of April 2011. So at that time, we drove up to Koryama uh, City uh, and we started measuring there. We collected the data. We also immediately were on the ground, we met people, we started to see that the levels were way higher than what we had thought they would be based on what NSK News and other news sources were telling us. So, and then we started to publish our first radiation map. And at this point you just had one, one unit? Yeah, and you know, at this point, very quickly after we built the first uh, versions of this, we eliminated the computer, the laptop, and we used an Arduino self-contained system. So it was kind of, water we made it waterproof, and we may also made it super easy to use, basically on and off switch, and it would just record or not record. So no need for people to understand computers and stuff like that. 
so we could hand them out to volunteers in Fukushima. So that was kind of the next major wave. And it was still kind of clunky, uh, and it still required a commercial Geiger counter to be in the box. So they were relatively expensive, and you know we had shortage of supply, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, we had, uh, I think, you know, tens of volunteers over the first three months that started to measure. We kept on churning out these boxes by putting them together here in Tokyo, and we started to get more and more data. So I think in the first three months we had about half a million data points okay. collected, and we started to really kind of see what was kind of happening in Fukushima. So you know the contours of where things were high, where things were low. And we really started to realize that it was very blotchy. It wasn't really predictable based on distance. And even in cities that were exposed inside the city, you would have higher areas, lower areas. So it really started to become clear that in, 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 in order to really get an idea what, what was happening, you had to go measure everything. So when you say like a, a high area and a low area, you mean like different parts of town or different corners but on the same street? Different corners on the same street really quite different. Yeah, and what we found out is, is that had a lot to do with uh, characteristics like a big roof could have uh, a big roof would be kind of a concentrator or fallout into one little corner that could create a much higher hotspot. Also, the the soil or the the road or the material it fell on uh, had an effect on how how high you would measure. So we literally could walk around you know short area and have very different measurements. Wow. Okay. So you really do need very high resolution. You need a tremendous amount of data to get anything yes. meaningful out of this. Yes, uh, absolutely. And, and you know, what is really important to understand this is that the people that were still living there, for them this was really, you know, real reality. You know, is my street okay or not okay? What should I do? You know, whatever. And we started to really work with people in communities that really uh, wanted us to help them out to measure their street, their, you know, their workplace, their, their school, their hospital. Mm -hmm. Then there was a secondary thing is, is that people that, after all, weren't living in affected areas, including, you know, Tokyo was affected, but not so much affected as Fukushima. Uh, it didn't really matter where you were. People were equally concerned. And the reason for that was we just didn't know. So Right. Well, I mean, people people didn't didn't trust the data they were being told. They right. didn't understand right. what the data meant anyway. Right. So. But also the same thing in Tokyo, right? You know, whatever the, the data that was available was, you know, a few locations only in Tokyo were measured, and that was what, that was the official measurement. But we knew in Tokyo there were hotspots as well, and Chiba there was a hotspot and stuff like that. It became equally important to measure Tokyo or Kyushu as it was to do Fukushima because the concern was across the country. So 2011 summer, we kind of made the, the, the commitment. Our goal was to measure everything. That solves the problem. And the Japanese government was, at that time, uh, had their hands full measuring inside the exclusion zone mm -hmm. and wasn't measuring outside. So it was a great complementary thing to do. So up until this point, the people who had been measuring had been affiliates or... Right. or it wasn't a true crowdsourcing community yet, right? Well, well, or was it just turning that corner? Well, you know, what is true crowdsourcing is that we didn't direct people to go do anything. People would raise their hands and we would provide them equipment to go and measure with. From a safe cost point of view, we never, at that time we were maybe maximum 10 people in Tokyo that were working on it. And we had way more people in the field doing all the measurements. So when did you develop the first... Geiger counter kit. Yes, the kit was kind of born about a year after that. By the time we already had maybe four or five iterations of the system uh, that we had built initially, by the time it had become quite sophisticated. Uh, but one of the big things was some people wanted to own it, and we were only lending it out. 
So the other thing was is the form factor. You know, if we could make it smaller, wouldn't it be great? If we would kind of be able to avoid the Geiger counter in there, we could bring down the cost. And so we experimented with that, and we found a form factor we kind of liked, and then we iterated a little bit further. And then the idea was born, well, you know, if, it is, if we can make this a kit, then people could build it themselves. So that would take away the problem of manufacturing, which has a huge lead time. You have. But didn't you run into the same problem before of the supply chain that makes the, the detection yes. units? Well, yes, mean. so but this is about a year after the accident. So around that time, the supply chain has uh, sprung into gear. And also we were lucky that one of our uh, advisors uh, was running a, a company making those and he could help us uh, source the equipment. The first batches of these kits were built in workshops. So we basically got 10 or many people in the same room and we would teach people how to build them. Then over time when we had a company that made it into a kit that you could buy on Amazon, so suddenly outside of Japan people started to buy them. Fast forwarding six years later, uh, we have many of these uh, in use worldwide now in many, many countries where so people are using these. About how many units are there worldwide? Uh, my guesstimate is around over a thousand growing rapidly that's why it's my guesstimate and these are now being used in you know many many countries i think we have counted way way over 90 countries where we have data from i imagine most of the coverage is in japan well not anymore about three years ago we got lots of volunteers in the u.s that started to measure a lot uh, after that europe came online big time and we have lots of volunteers in europe now that are measuring fairly seriously uh, roughly Maybe still over 50% is Japan, but uh, the rest is uh, for, or over 40% is from other countries now. Okay, so the device itself is, I mean, it's fairly expensive. It's $600 or so for the kit. Right. It, it's not a, a trivial matter to, yes. to decide to do this. So who are the people and organizations that decide to participate? Are they right. universities? Or are they just... There's no simple answer. It's very varied. We have, of course, uh, individuals like ourselves but we have companies that for some reason uh, are measuring other things already on the street and they find it interesting to participate and, and contribute, but also learn a bit about you know, open hardware and you know, how, how this whole new thing work. Of, you know, you know. We have universities that are participating. We have uh, local cities in Fukushima that are participating. We have uh, non-government organizations that, that are participating in the project. We also know that people buy them as a group activity so people chip in, everybody 50 bucks, and then they build, you know, they build one together and they share it in the community. Okay, actually, let's, let's talk about building a community and the, the value of the community. So data is great, but data by itself doesn't tell us much. So why is this, why is this good? What, what problem is this solving? You know, what, is this a matter of addressing public trust? Is this a matter of providing data where there was none before? Right, I think... You know, the two things you mentioned, providing trust and providing data that didn't exist, actually both of them are key factors in, in what we're trying to do. Uh, the trust building is increasingly, I think, you know, if we, if we look at what's happening in the world around us, it's increasingly a big issue. More and more people are realizing that, that you can't trust your own government for everything anymore. So there, I think there is an inc 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 uh, a big value in having checks and balances in our society around data like environmental data. I think in the past, you know, if, if you would have done this 10 years ago, most people would have trusted their government for collecting data about the environment and is it safe or not. We know better now that... Uh, and whether it's Fukushima in Japan or Flint, Michigan in the United yes. States, there's... Yes. Yeah. Uh, yes, exactly. And there are many examples of that. It doesn't mean that the government is doing nothing, but is the data open available? In many cases, it is not. 
But I think what is what is really happening is, is people have uh, a, a bigger need for knowing what is happening in the direct environments. Communities want to know what is happening. They worry more about uh, pollution and things like that. And at the same time, uh, there is not really a good checks and balances uh, to say that, hey, is this data really trustworthy? How can I check this? Then the second part which you mentioned is the data available. In many cases, it's not. So how do we solve that problem? One is, is we could wait for our governments to have more money to do more more things. The other thing is, is with the current technology, let's do it ourselves. And that's kind of the safe cost idea. So, you know. One thing I kind of found curious is that SafeCast is only available as a kit. Yes. So why did you make that decision? Because, I mean, obviously with something... Yes, why, why a kit and why not? So I think one thing that we uh, came to know early on, we did a Kickstarter in 2011 where we did a Geiger counter, a manufactured device. Uh, it was very successful, one of the, at that time, one of the more, more, most successful Kickstarters at that time. Uh, we had it manufactured, but it took about a year to get it from, you know, from uh, getting the money collected and getting people the devices in hand. And, and that is, if you look at Kickstarters, uh, this is a common problem. Manufacturing is hard, it takes much more time to get it right, and it's very expensive too. You know, if you make a mistake, you know, it multiplies. We kind of saw that experience and said, wait a minute, that's not really the greatest way to get things out, specifically small series. You know, if we can make it easy enough for people to solder, there's always somebody in the community can put it together. You know, it was kind of a bet. Uh, because we knew manufacturing was kind of out of the question. We also needed money up front, which we didn't have. And we didn't want to wait a year and do nothing. So we said, let's go and see what happens. There were skeptical people who said, well, people will never build it. But it turns out that there are enough people that want to do it. And for lots of people, it became a, kind of a, a unique experience to experience building something yourself. Well, and I suppose that, that people who are interested in measuring radiation, a lot of them are fairly comfortable with a soldering iron. Uh, actually not. Oh, really? Interestingly enough, not. You know, I would say at least half of the people participating or building have never soldered before. Okay. So the first thing they do is, is either they watch a YouTube video how to solder, or uh, at a workshop, the first thing we do is, is, first 30 minutes, is solder your first resistor on the board. But we had kids build them, we had uh, people in their 70s build them. It is not impossible. So selling the kits, the real advantage is it... Uh keeps costs down and allows you to control quality a little better? Yes, it, it keeps the cost down. But most important thing, and this is, I think, also if you look at startups, and it, cycle time is, is great because you can make changes to kits any day and the next kit will have to change in there. Uh, you also get an immediate feedback from people about, you know, about the, about the device. You can easily adjust for it. So we, even though the, the kit that people build today is more or less being the same for the last few years, Actually, every couple of months we have a small upgrade to it, and we keep on upgrading. And the cost of upgrading is almost nothing. You know, it's it's literally making you know the next board is slightly different or component changes. You know, if you compare to you know ten years ago, the cost of doing this has come down dramatically. With three D printers, we use laser cutters here in Fab Cafe, and the tools for for us to make that. You know, if you were in manufacturing 10 years ago, that was something that you only could do in a company. Now, that software is open source. Mm -hmm. Those equipment is available, uh, you know, in, in a cafe today. So that is huge difference. You know, you can really build devices very easily. But I guess that makes sense. When you're, when you're talking about a, a thousand plus devices over five or six years, that kind right. of small batch manufacturing, it's, it's right. really expensive. Right, it is expensive, yeah. but we don't manufacture, yeah, so for small batches it's expensive, and in this case it is a volunteer work, 
So people basically build it themselves, so we don't have a manufacturing cost, we only have a component cost. And we would just said, let's go give it a shot, see what happens. So, and uh, it worked out very, very well for us. Since everything is kit-based and people are assembling it themselves, how do you maintain data integrity? How do you make sure everything is calibrated correctly okay. all over the world? Right. So th that's a fundamental issue. Even if we would use manufacturer devices, the same question applies. Just because it is built in a, in a factory, it is also built by people that sold it together. So there's no difference there. So first of all, that it doesn't matter. Okay. What does matter is, is how do you know the devices as such are accurate and accurate over time? Let's say in the pre-Fukushima world, Geiger counters were very expensive because they had to stand on their own. And typically they would be used by people in laboratories or universities or hospitals or, or nuclear facilities. And so these Geiger counters or scintillators tend to be very expensive. And they were calibrated and every year you had to send them in and somebody would check, yes, thing is still working and fine. So enter the internet. We do use a very good sensor. However, you know, sensors can go bad. Uh, people may have made a mistake building the thing. And so the power of the internet is, is that we don't measure one location one time only. The idea is, is that multiple people that actually don't know each other will measure the same area over time. Okay. And this allows us to see anomalies. You know, if somebody has a bad uh, tube or a bad Geiger, then it will start to show up in our data and we've, we find those. And then we will talk to the volunteer and we'll take that data. Uh, you know, we will either have it fixed or we can do something. So we can see multiple people measure. Right. So as more and more people become part of the yes. SafeCast network, this yes. becomes less and less of a problem. Yes, exactly. And, and even if you spend tons of money on a great Geiger counter, you still don't have a guarantee that thing is going to work fine. So you're always going to have to deal with uncertainty. So you guys are doing some pretty cool stuff and you've gotten some great press what other are there other groups that are sharing this data or using this data yes. or contributing to it? Yes. So, so for you know, we didn't talk about it yet, but there's one really important aspect of the project is that everything we do is open and it is published under a Creative Commons Zero license. You can go to our website and download all the data we have collected over the last uh, six years, which is I think more than 65 million measurements by now. We do hope you give some. Uh, respect back to us, but there is no obligation whatsoever. So what are, what are some of the things people are doing with the data? It's very varied. The, the most common use is either local uh, government or local groups that use it to look for hotspots or to confirm for themselves that things are okay or as expected. Uh, the second is researchers. There's lots of different researchers that are doing research about expo you know, effects of radiation. Then there are the less expected use for, for the data to the extreme, we have artists that took our data and used our data to make artworks. Oh, wow. So we have an, a Hong Kong artist that turned it into, uh, used our data to create a virtual tour of Fukushima, where you drive in a virtual landscape in Fukushima, where the, the music and, uh, and the graphics are driven by the measurement data we have for that area. So, and we didn't know he was doing it because he just found the data, used it, and we just found about him later because, <laughs> you know, he was on the web because of this artwork, and we said, oh, that's our data, that's so, how, how awesome that is. So. Well, that's kind of the whole dream of Creative Commons, isn't it? Yes. Joita talks about serendipity, and it's a very important thing. You know, if you, if you think about a startup, or if you're going to think that you're going to predict everything is going to happen, uh, it's not going to happen that way. You're going to stumble, you're going to, and, and you have to open up yourself for that, 
that type of thing. And it, making things open, not always is the right thing to do if you run a company, but of course we're a non-profit, we, we're explicitly doing that. But it creates, you know, it creates an opportunity for people to do stuff with your data you would never have thought about. So, you know, instead of trying to envision everything, that stumbling around actually can get you further than when you were kind of constraining yourself with what you mm. think would, would happen. Yeah, yeah. And this I think one of the reasons I think personally why SafeCast is still around after six years is that we typically tend not to be too much planning, you know, try to sit down and try to think through everything. We try to experiment and see what works. Well, the more people, the more minds there are working on a set of data, the more yes. interesting uses you're going to get yes. for it. And another funny use actually is, you know, is people are, you know, lots of people love to have an open data set they can just play with. They're not really interested in, 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 in radiation, they're just interested in an open data set they can play with. So we have all kinds of other researchers that just use our data to test out their new algorithms and stuff, which is also great because we get something back. Uh, you know, they, they may be able to help us refine our maps or our visualizations uh, over time. In an earlier interview, you mentioned that you'd taken criticism from both pro-nuclear and anti-nuclear camps right. over SafeCast. And yes. it seems to me that just data is data. So what, what was the basis for the criticisms? I think the polarization that is happening in our societies increasingly, and which is uh, one of the big things I personally worry, would worry about, has made people so much, you know, uh, detached from data, or use data in the only, you know, only that fits my purpose type of data use has become so prevalent that if you talk about something and it is not fits into your whatever your 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 thing is, then you must be on the other side. And, um, so, so just the idea that SafeCast might produce data yeah. that would contradict their yes. beliefs? Yes, yes. So, so some people uh, had very strong uh, opinions about the radiation levels in Fukushima. There were people that thought that everybody would die in Japan uh, overnight, and there were people that said absolutely nothing, uh, no problems at all, this is all background radiation. So we had extremes. And, and these people tend to also... Uh, you know, they have not looked at the data. They they already know the answer, and and both both are wrong uh, from a data point of view. Our point was not to figure out the problems around nuclear power or nuclear energy or anything like that. That it, it, it is a you know it, it is a whole different thing. Our point was this can be, you know, I want to know what the data is, and we'll figure out what to do once we understand yeah. the data. And then, and then you know, and then based on that, let's have a discussion. And the the criticism you got was this a was this simply a very loud minority on both extremes, or...? Uh, I, I think it's broader than that. I, I think there were definitely on both of the extremes, but there was a much bigger middle group that had lost trust. And so, for the same reason they would not trust uh, the government, they wouldn't trust what Safecast was doing. So people were very... They needed to understand better how we were working. Mm. And as we were moving, we, you know, we spent lots of time explaining to people that this is how it works. We also spent time documenting how we work, and we had scientists uh, critique. Uh, everything we do is, is we do it pretty much in the open, so people can come and challenge and critique, and we have you know, lots of uh, you know, heated debates online about, you know, is this the right way to measure, or is this the right, and isn't it? And so it's a truly global community yeah, so, as well. Yeah, so it's, it, it, you know, you were exactly, and, and people, you know, people come out and say, hey, you know, is this really the right way to do it? So over time, we have been kind of battle-tested in terms of fighting these uh, battles. If anything, we kind of see ourselves as pro-data. 
right. instead of you know pro-nuclear or anti-nuclear, besides it's pro-dead. That's that's that that is you know that's the problem we're trying to solve here. So have you largely overcome that trust problem at least here in Japan? I don't know. Uh, I think we still. Uh, I think in Japan the trust that was lost in the government still needs lots of work. Mm-hmm. Specifically, if you go to Fukushima, there's still lots of people that. Uh, uh, have big trust issues. We're, we're, you know, we obviously have tried to do whatever we could do about that. We know we have dialogues with government groups, etc., about, uh, you know, what we think they can do better. Well, actually, since the Safe Cast movement, um, a lot of its roots were in the mistrust of the government data. Has the Japanese government been supportive of your efforts, either on a national or local level? I would say in the beginning, uh, nor obstructive nor supportive uh, we kind of worked on our in our own space I think now we have much more interactions where there is uh, depending on the government we're not only interacting with government in Japan we're working you now on a global scale we're working right. in different countries and it depends on the country but there's a general uh, interest to understand how we operate and how this works and the reason for that is that this build better trust uh, it also solves a logistical problem you know if you look at Fukushima it's a huge area. You're talking about a massive area that got got contaminated. And how do you measure that? It's just not possible for a government to have an army ready to go in and measure it. So well, I, I could see something like, I mean, in the exclusion zone is a very special case because that's not, right. a lot of places still aren't safe for people right. to go back in. But for um, a city in the rest of Japan, it seems like it would just be ideal to put a bunch of these safe cast devices on the backs of buses right. and let them monitor the city right. as they go about their business. Yes. So in some cities, we're actually doing that. All right. I mean, they're not buses, but they're, uh, uh, they're motorbikes. But yes, we are, we are, we, some cities, we're doing that. It's really an experiment to figure out how that works best. Having the technology is one thing, but also even if the government would use the safe cast device to measure, it still doesn't solve the trust issue. So... You need both. You need, you know, ideally you want the government to up their 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 measurements, but, but at the same time you also want to have a way to keep it in in balance. But it seems to me that that would be an ideal way of getting that trust back because the government is taking their measurements and releasing them, and yes. any citizen can yes. double check. Exactly. I don't think we're there yet, but mm. uh, I think we, you know, I think there is more realization that having. Citizen science, you know, what, what is the role of citizen science? You know, does it have, you know, in this case, is citizen measuring, is that useful or not? I think it is very useful. It also is very useful for, you know, for, for officials to say, hey, you know, we can compare. Are we in the ballpark or not? You know, are we, you know. And if it is in the ballpark, there's nothing wrong with it. Then it gives, you know, extra level of confidence on both sides that, you know, this is what it is. And if there's a discrepancy, both sides can yes. investigate further. Yes. The other thing is, is I think what's important is, is that the long, you know, the, the, how do we make sure that our data, which is now becoming our history, doesn't get er- erased? So by having it in two separate uh, entities makes it hard f- for data to disappear. Well, I mean, looking forward, I think it's easy to see why this is beneficial for everyone involved. But SafeCast is a disruptive model, and people being disrupted don't like it. And so Japan especially, I mean, and this is what I've heard from just so many people who've been on the show, what you're doing is replacing what has been the territory of universities and government agencies, I mean, since the end of the war. Mm -hmm. And did you receive any pushback on that? Not in the sense of uh, 
pushback in, in obstructing what we were doing. But uh, definitely lots of people were very skeptical in the beginning, you know, you know, this is amateurs and blah, 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 you know. You know, specific, you know, if you look at the scientific community, uh, you know, if you have spent your whole life building super expensive equipment to measure and you have a bunch of guys walking with, you know, relatively cheap stuff that actually outperforming what you're doing, of course, you know, you, you're, you're, you're walking in somebody else's terrain. The reality, though, is, is that nobody had a really good answer after Fukushima. And, and that is, I think, the essence there. So even though, you know, the, let's say the authorities, etc., may have had opinions, the reality was is they had maybe a few cars that were equipped with equipment to measure at best. Uh, they didn't have the scale or a way to scale up or a way to engage. And every, so didn't, they never had thought that through. And of, of course, an accident like this doesn't happen regularly. And it's at accidents like this, it's are the opportunities there to see what works and doesn't work. And I think that's where the disruption is. It was the disruption definitely was quick to react. We were very fast to build and, and, and do. And that's in, you know, in Japan, is people take you know are, are afraid to fail afraid to take a risk so they would take much more time than we did in building the equipment and test it out and that would be too late you know if you're too late you actually take a bigger risk because now you know you, you've missed the whole opportunity and you know and i think in japan you know i've been here for, for a very long time myself you know the, the fear of failure which wasn't there in japan after the war etc it's something that has built up over the last 20 30 years has become a, a major, you know, obstructive factor in, in trying out new stuff. Now, this, this is a generalization. There's lots of people that are trying to do it differently. But in general, if you look at larger companies, nobody, you know, the funny thing is, is nobody came up with a, with a better Geiger counter after the whole accident. Yeah. You're still working on it, maybe, but I've not seen it. So, so have the, has the central government and universities kind of come around to the SafeCast way of thinking over the last six years? Uh, I think so. First of all, what's important to notice is that K University was a partner early on with SafeCast, almost from the beginning. Uh, Professor Murai uh, from K University, uh, we also worked together with researchers from Tokyo University very early on. So I think in the academic community, uh, there is a very wide range of, of people, but these were the people in the academic community that traditionally didn't do radiation measurement. They were, they were active in other areas. So that is, you know, the people that were traditionally in those spaces, they, you know, they, they, uh, they took some time to come around. Mm. And, uh, you know, we, we kind of addressed that issue uh, more importantly last year by publishing a scientific paper about the method techniques to address some of the uh, academic discussions where people were kept on uh, asking the same question, you know, but is this scientifically okay? Is it so we, we published it in one of the most prestigious journals, we had it fully peer-reviewed, took a year to get it peer-reviewed. Uh, it's now one of the most popular uh, publications in that journal, uh, we're in wow. the top 10, but we, we went back and said, you know, citizen science is after all science, so, and we, with our volunteers, we worked on it, and we uh, published some of the principles behind safe costs and why is this a viable way to measure. But it, it makes perfect sense. I mean, and being challenged by the academics is good because that dialogue is important. Well, it's it's any any organization, whether it's an NPO or a startup, goes through that same trajectory where yeah. when you're out of the gate, you're trying anything, you're taping yeah. things together, just trying to solve a problem any way you can, and then fix the smaller problems and obtain legitimacy. Yeah. You know, I think as you grow. If you think about being disruptive, etc., I think what's really important is is that. If it doesn't trigger dialogues, if it only triggers, you know, uh, b people being upset with each other, then you may not be on, on, on a winning path. I think creating the dialogues and being critiqued and also taking in critique uh, while you disrupt and being open to that and, and of course, quickly react to that actually is, a, is, is, is the way to go. So, and I think over time, you know, people have come around and said, well, this is a whole different way of doing things. So we have inspired lots of people in other 
areas, not just measure, you know, not in radiation measurement, but in lots of other areas, where they try to build a similar type of, of, of model for doing solving their problem. I find it incredibly encouraging that Japan in particular is taking to this philosophy as well as they are. Right. The idea of, of citizen science, of data sharing, of open data. So how do you think citizen science is going to develop in Japan over the next 10 years, for example? What, do you, what changes are we going to see here? I don't know, because citizen science is, is you know, it's like a buzzword. And uh, we've been doing so-called citizen science for the last six years, but I've seen other groups doing things in very different ways. I, what I do, what I'm sure about those is that we're going to see more citizen science-like projects that are increasingly more successful and more impactful. And the reason for it is very simple: is the technology that drives it is getting cheaper and cheaper. Uh, the access people have to it is getting better, and people are having better tools to corroborate on that. What we have seen is is that we have inspired quite a few researchers or other groups doing the same thing with something else. We're teaching people how to do safe costs. Uh, we're we're sharing our you know, way of thinking. So I'm quite sure more. More of this will happen. So, what, what other kind of what other kind of problems are people attacking with citizen science? Uh, okay, so what, one example is a is a researcher that is uh, trying to focus on the quality of water. Uh, he's been trying to figure out how can we measure water at people's homes. But the same thing, he wants to do a similar way as we're doing. Uh, another researcher has been trying to measure the ocean for radiation. Hmm. Uh, ocean is very big, as you know, and in order. And there's a technical problem with that. Uh, you can't just put a Geiger counter uh, above water and measure it. Uh, you need to actually take 20 liters of water, boil it until it is completely evaporated, and then the residue you put in a Geiger counter, you measure it. It's very, it's not so easy. You know, he was doing this on his own as a researcher, and he's one of the leading researchers in this. And he could only get so many samples as he could cook water. I can imagine, yes. Right, you know, you know just imagine cooking seawater. You know, it's not entirely, you know, a great experience. So. So what he has done is after we met him, he said, wow, this is a great idea if I can get people to collect the water for me. So we kind of teamed up and he started to do the same thing. So now he has a kit that he mails to people. They fill it up with water, they send it back to him. He does the cooking and measurement. He sends back the results to the people that collected it and he gets the data he's looking for. So there are many inspirational things that, that are spin-offs of, of the same idea. And I'm quite sure there will be much more of this. I think in the whole developing side of the world, there will be much more of this than there will be in the developing side. If you look at places like Africa or Asia or whatever, where there is huge pollution problems, etc., I think people are going to be armed with much cheaper equipment that will allow them in their communities to have much more impact about what is happening. And I think that's, I think, where we s we'll see uh, citizen science revolution. Excellent. Well, I hope we do see that. Well, listen, before we wrap up, I want to ask you my what I call my magic wand question. And you spent six years trying to get this innovation to become mainstream in Japan. If I gave you a magic wand and I told you you could change one thing about Japan, anything at all, the legal system, the education system, the way people think about risk, anything at all to make it easier for new innovation to take root in Japan, what would you change? I think it's a combination of the educational system and the risk attitude towards risk. I think that's a big thing. If, if Japan can change that, they will have a much better way to innovate. So basically, the educational system teaching from kids onwards about, you know, failure can be a way to learn. 
failure is not necessarily bad. Failure can be very good. People are way too much worried about the downside than the upside. Uh, failure is, you know, by definition, not good or bad. But definitely making failure by definition bad is, is a big handicap. And I think it roots in the educational system. It roots in some, some cultural, but, you know, if you go back in history not so long ago, the young entrepreneurs after the Second World War were very different from the people we see mm. right now. So they weren't, you know, uh, afraid of taking a risk or a failure. They were actually quite courageous. So I think, you know, things have somehow gone into a, into a direction that uh, values, uh, uh, you know, low risk over, uh, over progress. You know, if that changes, I think, for innovation in Japan, I think it will have an impact. Well, listen, Peter, thank you so much for sitting yes. down with me. I really appreciate it. Yes, thank you. And we're back. We're not quite there yet, but projects like SafeCast and citizen science more generally have the potential to invert the relationship between government scientists and citizens. You see, environmental monitoring and research projects are usually far too large for an individual organization to undertake. And historically, the solution has been to have the government take on that responsibility on behalf of all parties. It's a good system, and it's worked pretty well so far. What's interesting here is that now some projects are simply too large for the government to undertake, but individual concerned citizens acting together can do the research and get the data. There's no way a government program would be able to get funding to monitor radiation or pollution on every corner of every street, but concerned individuals working together are already heading in that direction. And quite frankly, anything that involves citizens collaborating directly with a government agency towards a common goal or citizens working directly with the scientific community will go a long way to improving people's understanding of government and science. And it likely will improve the quality and responsiveness of both government and science. The fact that Peter and the SafeCast team are now winning over the scientific establishment on their own terms by publishing in peer-reviewed journals is something that all startups can learn from. This is the other side of disruption, and it's the more important and more difficult side. The real value in disruption is not the destruction of the old way of doing something. The value is replacing it with something sustainable and better, with something that improves people's lives something that becomes the new way of doing things. If you've got an experience in crowdsourcing or citizen science, Peter and I would love to hear from you. So come by disruptingjapan.com slash show089 and let us know what you think. When you come by the site, you'll see all the links and notes that Peter and I talked about and much, much more in the resources section of the post. But most of all, thanks for listening. And thank you for letting people interested in Japanese startups know about the show. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for listening to Disrupting Japan. Disrupting Japan is a proud member of the Japan Podcast Network. 
It's a community of some of the best audio content about Japan. So if you're looking for other high-quality podcasts about Japan, check out the other shows in the Japan Podcast Network.